0: Thank you, Simon. Um, I was speaking this week to one of our Turkish elders in one of our churches in Istanbul. He's a guy that got saved with us, and now he's an elder in the church there. And I said, oh, I'm going to sp- be speaking on this subject to a bunch of people. And he said, please, will you bring them a greeting from us? So this is a greeting from a church in Istanbul, and Turks are quite formal in their style. So this is the greeting, okay? Brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from Turkey, from the land of the seven churches of Revelation, from the land where Antioch is and where Galatia is, from the land where the Apostle Paul was born, in fact, from the land where the whole Bible was written, and we hope you like our book. (laughs) And the point, obviously, is that The Bible is a Middle Eastern book written in the Middle East by Middle Eastern people. And the characters there are Middle Eastern. And when God took flesh, he took flesh as a Middle Eastern first century man. And so there is a cultural context to the Bible and actually... Reading the Bible can be a cross-cultural exercise. You want to understand something of the culture of the people in the Bible and the language there, and that helps us better understand the message of the Bible. Amen? And so what we want to look at in this seminar this morning, and I'm really glad you've come, is the whole subject of honor and shame and how that works itself out in the context of the Bible's culture, in some of the Old Testament stories, in some of the New Testament stories, and for me, I feel there's, there's three reasons why this is important. The first region, reason is exegetical. So to actually understand some of what the Bible is saying, some of what goes without being said in some of the stories in the Bible, we need to understand the concept, really, the language of honor and shame a little bit. And you do, and when you read some of the stories and when we look at some of the things, you'll go, yeah, yeah, I knew that, I understood that. And it's just trying to put some language on that. And actually, it, it's, it's very important because the Bible is written in a predominantly honor-shame world. And, for example, guilt and its derivatives are found 145 times in the Old Testament and 10 times in the New Testament. Whereas shame and its derivatives are found over 300 times in the Old Testament and 45 times in the New Testament. And so there's twice as much shame language in the Bible. As there is guilt language in the Bible. Okay? And so there's an exegetical importance to understanding this subject. Secondly, there's a missional importance to understanding this subject. So, witnessing to people in other cultures, preaching the gospel to people in our towns and cities in the UK who are from non English backgrounds, actually, to many people, if you said to them, I know the answer, to the forgiveness of your guilt. Yeah, the removal of your guilt. Jesus is the answer to that. A lot of people may say to you, actually, that's not the question that we're asking. So in my context, witnessing to Muslims, if I say to a Muslim, oh, I know how you can get your sins forgiven, they'll say no big deal. Allah is merciful, I sin, he forgives my sin. That's easy, that's not my question. My question is how can I have my shame removed? How can I have this weight of shame taken off me and so we need a gospel that, that speaks to that, so there's a missional importance to understanding this as well. and then thirdly, there's a pastoral importance. so if we are only preaching that Jesus offers forgiveness for our sin, which is part of the gospel but it's not the whole gospel, and if're we're, if we're only touching the kind of the guilt aspect to what people feel in response to sin, then people that are feeling shame as a result of their sin, people that are feeling shame as a result of the mental illness that they've su- suffered, people that are feeling shame as a result of the abuse that was done to them, people in our churches that are carrying a weight of shame and not necessarily hearing a gospel that, that really speaks deeply to the thing that they're carrying and their felt need. And so actually to, to preach the gospel not just for guilt, but broader than that, to speak to people's shame, is of massive pastoral importance for us. Uh, the last couple of years I've been in the UK and I've had the opportunity to, to travel around many churches in the UK and preach in many places. And I found often as part of my preaching, I'm making an allusion to shame and we're seeing many people respond to the gospel on that basis. And, and, and so there's, there's something that we need to be preaching that's broader in our gospel. And I hope to show you some of that today. And so the way I'm going to go today I've got no lectern, so I've got to hold my notes. I'm sorry. Uh, The way I'm going to go today is rather than give you lots of kind of principles and theory, I want to show you some passages from Scripture that are read through a slightly more on a shame lens. And I hope that in doing that, actually, it will show you some things in the Bible, show you some things about Jesus, but then also give you some tools, equip you as well, So that when you read the scripture, when you're preaching and sharing and teaching in your small groups and in your churches, that that you'll be skilled up a little bit to be able to do that. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into some scripture. Is that okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the, the privilege and the opportunity of being here, sitting under your word today. I pray come Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We need you so much. Open the eyes of our hearts. Let us have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And to know that love that surpasses knowledge. Increase our love for you today by increasing our knowledge and understanding. I really pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you hear at the back? Is that okay? Great. Okay, we're going we're to gonna kind of do three broad categories. And within each one, I'm going to do a few Bible stories or a few pieces of Scripture to try and illustrate that. The first one is honor and shame and atonement. Okay, honor honour and shame and atonement, or the cross, the price. And this is really important because, for example, if we take the parable of the prodigal son which is where we'll start, many Muslims would use this scripture to say, ah, Jesus was a good Muslim. Really? Yeah, yeah, Jesus was a good Muslim. Paul later made him a Christian. How do you figure? Well, because in this story, according to a common reading of it, the son goes away and sins, but then he comes back and the father accepts him and there's no cost to the father accepting him he's merciful you repent fine i'll accept you that's what allah does in islam but actually the way jesus told this story the whole point of this story is that there's a great cost to the father in accepting the returning prodigal but to understand that cost we need to understand it in terms of a reputational cost there is a cost to the father's most precious currency which is his reputation his standing his honor in the community that's what it costs him and so to look at this story, the father's job is to keep the family together and to keep the family's honor intact. That's the inheritance, the land, it's the sons. Yeah, keep your daughters chaste and keep your sons obedient. That's, that's how you keep that your family honor intact. And so when the younger son divides the inheritance, turns some of it into cash, goes away, he's bringing enormous shame on his father. And the whole community sees it, and the whole community is expecting the father to respond. You've been shamed. What response are you going to do to put this right? How are you going to get satisfaction for your jilted honor? That's the question. Now, the father should, and this would happen all over the Middle East today, the father should disown the son, push the shame away. In fact, he's got every right to kill the son. And in his death, to kind of get rid of this affront, this shame. Okay? The Jews had a ceremony called a Kizaza ceremony, which was a cutting off ceremony. And in the the context where Jesus was telling this story, this is what people would expect. The son should be, the, the, the community should gather. And there should be a formal cutting-off ceremony. We now disown you from our village. We disown you from our community. Take your shame and go away and never come back. You're not one of us anymore. That's what should happen. But instead, when the son returns, the father comes out of his house, runs, which is shameful. You know, if, if, if anyone, Has anyone read any Kenneth Bailey here on some of these things? On, on? So I would commend to you Kenneth Bailey, anything by him on the parables in terms of understanding the, the cultural context of the parables. But he would argue that for an older man, the father of the household, to run is extremely shameful. It's like that's what, that's what young boys do. That's what children do. So the father runs, embraces the child in front of the whole community, and everyone is thinking, what a weak guy, What a weak guy. He can't even sort out the shame in his own household. He can't even keep his sons obedient. He can't even restore his jilted honor. What a weak guy. It costs the father a huge amount reputationally to embrace the son, to put the cloak on him, to have the party. That's why the older son is so angry. And then the older son, because this weakness, this kind of, oh, their, their family are weak, their family forgive, that's terrible. You know, as an aside, in Turkey, when you tell the story of Joseph, Turks love the bit where Joseph is in the prison and suffering and having a heart. Hu- Turks love that. Oh, he suffers like we suffer. Oh, we identify. Turks hate the bit where he forgives his brothers. Oh, what a, what a terrible ending. to It was such a good story until now. He's ruined the story by, by not holding his honor intact, by giving it up and forgiving. Oh, what a weak guy. Terrible ending. Interesting, huh? And so th- the older son does something even more shameful. The father is in the house with the party, with all the elders from the village and the community. And the elder son refuses to go in and honor his elders and kiss their hands and show respect to them. This is even more shameful than what the younger son did. And so the father, for the second time in one day, leaves the house, goes outside, goes to his older son, shows an incredible forbearance, reprocesses his anger into grace, offers his elder son an invitation to come in, and and then the the story ends and the question is open to us, how are you going to respond? That's how Jesus finishes his story. He closes them, fine, you respond. And so in this story, what we see is the father is shown to be in the eyes of the community really weak by his act of embrace and forgiveness rather than by pushing shame out. Does that make sense? Okay, it's going to be important because as we go on, we're going to see this is quite a theme in Scripture uh, because it's a significant teaching about how God our Father responds to us when we show shame towards him. The, the second story or illustration is the parable of the tenants, so Luke chapter 20. And we see a, a similar principle at work here. So we have the guy p- plants a vineyard, and then he rents it out to tenants. And they are supposed to, they're, they're p- they're supposed to pay their rent. It's not a cash society. So when harvest time comes, they're supposed to give a proportion of the harvest to the vineyard owner. And that's how they will pay their rent. And so harvest time comes, and they don't pay anything. And so he sends a servant to go and say, hey, where's what is due me? And they don't pay anything, and they, th- they throw the guy out. And so they're showing disrespect. They're showing dishonor to the owner of the land. Now, in the Middle East and often in the Bible, land is like a, a, a manifestation of your honor. It's part of your family honor. It's part of your family name. This is our land. This is who we are. It's our roots. It's where we're from. And so them using the land without paying for it is akin to rape. It's, it's an incredibly offensive thing to do. We're using your land, but we're disrespecting you. We're not going to pay you our honor. We're not going to pay you our dues. And so he sends somebody else. And then this time, it says in Luke, quite specifically, him they treated shamefully. Yeah, they dishonored him. They beat him up. They did. And the whole community can see. You have to remember, everything. There's no privacy in the Middle East. Believe me, I've lived there. Uh, in the, everyone can always see everything unless the Bible explicitly says that they were on their own. And so the community is watching and evaluating and saying, what is this guy going to do to restore his jilted honor? What is he going to do? He sends another servant, and this one they beat up and they throw out. And he sends another one, and this one they kill. And then he has a question, and, he's, and you have this kind of wonderful moment in the story, where it's like God's soliloquy, God speaking to himself, the landowner speaking to himself. What shall I do? I know I'll send my only son. Perhaps they will show honor to him. That's what the verse says. And so rather than just coming down with the full force of the law and squashing them and doing away with this shame and reinforcing his standing and status in the community as an unimpeachable guy whose honor is intact, Rather than doing that, he sends his son, unarmed and defenseless, into a place of men that are already geared up and getting increasingly aggressive. And the goal is, perhaps I will rekindle some lost sense of honor amongst these people. (coughs) And instead, they kill the son, and they throw him out of the inheritance. And Jesus told this parable a couple of days before he died. And Jesus told this parable in response to a question. And the question was, where do you get your authority from? Who gives you the right to do these things? And in answer to that question, Jesus told this story. So this story is the answer to who is Jesus and where does he get his authority from? And this story is our story. We're, the, we're living in God's garden. We're the renters, but we don't pay him what he deserves, the honor and the worship and the respect that he's due. We, although we are renters, we act like owners. That's Jesus' redefining of sin. We act like it's ours, but it's not ours, it's his. And then he sends the prophets to remind mankind all the way through history, and we treat them shamefully and throw them out, so that in the end he sends his son, and him we kill and treat shamefully. And so the story is our story. We'll see this principle again in the story of Joseph and Mary, so Matthew chapter 1. And... We know the story very well, it's very familiar to us, but sometimes we find the cultural context of this story quite impenetrable. So they were engaged, but then it talks about divorce, how does that work? And um, in the story, what we understand is that Mary has gone away to see Elizabeth, her cousin, and when she comes back, she's very clearly pregnant. So she comes, she's been away for six months, she comes into the village, gets off the cart or whatever, walks into the village, and is very clearly pregnant and um, all the gossip starts, all the rumors start. What's going on? Mary's been away, she's come back, she's pregnant. What is all this about? What are her family gonna do about it? She is bringing shame on the whole village. Yeah? There's gonna be a scandal on the whole village. All the other villages are gonna talk about this village as the one that allowed this woman to get pregnant who wasn't married. There's an enormous shame, not just on Mary, but shame is understood to be contagious. It pollutes. It pollutes the whole village. You see this from like politicians. Yeah? If a politician's brother or cousin is associated with some scandal, it kind of taints their reputation as well. Yeah, So shame, scandal is understood to pollute, to taint the people that are associated with it, which is why we have honor killings. And the whole point of an honor killing is if there's shame on this person, We need to kill this person, get rid of them, remove the shame by the shedding of their blood so that our integrity, our reputation is intact, yeah? And so Joseph and the family have three choices in terms of how they should respond to Mary's situation. And remember, Joseph is a prophet, and so he shows us what God is like in his response. And the first choice is justice. Joseph has a a cultural and legal right, even obligation, to stone Mary to death. And he, as the aggrieved partner, should be the first to to cast the first stone. So really what the community should do, and this still happens in the Middle East today, is they should bring Mary, Joseph should accuse her, he should cast the first stone, and the community should stone her to death. This is justice. This is what, what they should do. We're told in Matthew chapter 1 that because Joseph was a righteous man and he, because he loved Mary, he wasn't even considering option one. Joseph was considering option two, which was to divorce her quietly in order that she might not be put to shame. That's what it says in, the, in Matthew chapter 1. And so what Joseph is considering is actually, I don't want her killed, but I will still distance myself from this scandal. She can stay with her father in her father's house she can have an illegitimate child, she will never marry again, she'll she'll always live as kind of a pariah, as an outcast, she'll always live as a single mother in a culture 2,000 years ago with the stigma that comes with that. And can you imagine, her child, the Lord Jesus, would then be born in that situation. That, That was Joseph's plan. So to, to not bring harm on her and to bring minimum shame, but still there's a separation. My honor will be intact because I've distanced myself from her. Joseph was considering this, and then that night he had a dream. And in the dream, the angel said to him, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And Joseph is like, what? And so if the first choice was justice to kill if the second choice was uh, mercy which was not to kill the third choice is grace which means to absorb the shame himself and so all the eyes of the village all the scorn of the village instead of being poured on mary is now going to be poured on joseph because he's he's assimilating her shamefulness into his own reputation so he is decreased by association with her, and her standing is increased by association with him. There's a great cost to Joseph, a great reputational cost. His, his honor is forever besmirched, really. He's taking responsibility and drawing her into himself. And so he absorbs Mary, he marries Mary, but at great cost to himself. Does that make sense? And her story is our story. Because we come with our shame. And God has three choices. And the first choice is justice, which is to kill, to destroy. We see a picture of this in Noah's flood, if you like. You know, to, to wash away the shame, to do away with mankind, and to start again, if you like. But because he loves us, God chooses not to do that. The second choice is mercy. And we see this in many religions. And the, the mercy choice for God would be that we stay in our planet, full of our shame, and God stays in heaven with his glory and purity intact, and never the twain shall meet. And so we live here in a life that's not really life, that's more like death. And he stays in his unimpeachable perfect glory, but there's a, there's a, there's a separation, there's a gap. And in most religions, that's the picture of God's mercy. But in the gospel, God goes beyond that and offers grace. And in the gospel of grace, God chooses to, in spite of us being shameful, chooses to marry us, chooses to bring us into his family and under his name and under his protection, and chooses, therefore, to absorb our shame. And so that's why many other religions look at Christianity and see it as a symbol of weakness. Our, our sign is the cross. The cross was the most shameful, the most scornful thing that Rome had to offer. The reason that Muslims don't accept that Jesus died on the cross is because, and I've heard many, many, many people say this to me, is they say there's no way that God would allow something so shameful to happen to to one of his prophets. God would not allow that because it it taints God's honor, and God's honor must be unimpeachable. And so there's no way that we can accept the cross because it's so shameful. But what we see is actually the cross is a picture of God lowering himself in order to raise us, as Joseph did to Mary. It's not unique to Joseph. Actually, Joseph's ancestors, at least a couple of them, had done this. So the story of Boaz and Ruth, this is what is happening Ruth turns up in the village of Bethlehem carrying all kinds of shame because she's a refugee, because she's a Moabite, which for the Jews was like, ugh, a Moabite, ugh. Like the people your mother warned you about. The, uh, the history is offensive to Jewish people. And so that's why when she turns up, everyone's always saying, oh, it's, it's Ruth the Moabite, like ugh. And and so for so many reasons, because she's a widow, because she's used goods. Anyone? For so many reasons, she's brought shame into the village. And so Boaz, at great cost to himself, offers her his protection and his patronage. And actually, Boaz, who's a noble, he's a landowner, he's highborn, he's, he's w- one of the great families of Judah, it really costs him to do this. That's why people back off him. That's why in chapter 4 of Ruth, when he offers the opportunity to have Ruth to the other guy, the other kinsman redeemer, the guy says, no way, man, I'm not touching her. And, and uh, to me, the analogy it's not perfect, but in 1936 in the UK, uh, we had King Edward VIII. He was the king of England, highborn, very honorable, noble guy. Um, but he fell in love with somebody. And for several reasons, this was an inappropriate match for him. Her name was Wallace Simpson. Uh, Number one, she was a commoner. (gasps) King can't marry a commoner. Number two, even worse, she was American. (gasps) See, feel the shame of it. (laughs) Number three, she was a divorcee. And number four, not only was she a divorcee, she was remarried and still married. So this was an <laughs> adulterous relationship. And the king said, I want to marry her. And the the, the cabinet said, not on your life. And Winston Churchill wrote to him and said, she ain't nothing but a gold digger. She's only after your money and your reputation. But Edward VIII so loved her that he renounced his throne in order to marry her. Now, Posterity is still out on whether he was a weak guy who got played by a clever lady, or whether he was a romantic hero who renounced his throne and his glory in order to pursue the woman that he loved. And if we took a vote here, it might go half and half, I don't know. Obviously, the UK context has changed very much now in terms of its understanding of what is honorable and what is shameful, because, you know, we've just had Harry and Meghan and it's beautiful and we all cried at the wedding. But in 1936, it was reputation that governed everything, still in the UK. And so it was a a cultural context much closer, perhaps, to our understanding of what it cost Boaz to embrace Ruth. There's one other consistent picture in terms of understanding honor and shame and the atonement throughout the Bible that I just want to kind of highlight for you, and that's the kind of metaphor of nakedness and covering, and so throughout Scripture, nakedness is shame. And covering, or garments, or clothing, is an honoring. Okay? And so even as far back as Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, we understand that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. And that they understood because they were naked, they, they, w- they felt shame. And they wanted to hide themselves. And then we read a beautiful thing in Genesis 3 and 21. We have, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife... Garments of skins and clothed them. So we have here the first sacrifice. God takes animals that have been killed, takes their skins and clothes Adam and Eve to take away their shame, to kind of cover them up, to honor them. It's a picture of atonement. And the Hebrew word for covering is kefar, okay? Now, kefar is the word that we have for atonement, in the Bible. So the day of atonement is the day of kefar. it's the day of covering. And so atonement, literally in scripture, is a covering of that which is naked. And that's that's what the atonement that is offered to us in Christ is. In the story of Joseph, you will see many times the use of garments or clothing and nakedness as a metaphor. So his father clothes him with this robe, to kind of honor him above all the other brothers. The brothers are jealous. They're angry. They attack him. They take off his robe. They rip it. They cover it in blood. They kind of make him naked and sell him naked as a slave. And then later, uh, when Pharaoh appoints him, it says that he's clothed in garments of fine linen. And when his brothers come before him, he's standing there clothed again in these garments of fine linen. And all the way. So even... Uh, when Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with him and she takes his garment from him and he runs naked. Yeah, he's been shamed. He's had his, his integrity, his honor, his dignity stolen from him. And so all the way through Joseph, and often in Scripture, when we find nakedness and garments, we can read in that a metaphor for shame and for covering. Uh, the honoring of Mordecai in Esther chapter 6. So they say, what, what what should be done for the man who the king chooses to honor? And the answer is, Esther chapter 6 and verse 7, Haman said to the king, For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden on, and whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, Proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the, the man whom the king delights to honor. Okay, so you want to honor someone, you clothe them. You put robes on them. I, if you read Ezekiel chapter 16, and this could be an, an exercise that you could do later. If you read Ezekiel chapter 16 and looking for language of honoring and shaming in that chapter, you'll find it's very rich with metaphor. And the, the, the story of Ezekiel 16 is the story of Israel the story of God's chosen people, and essentially he says, I found you naked, and so I clothed you. I clothed you with fine linen and garments, and I I made you beautiful, and I presented you to the world as this clothed and beautiful young woman. But then you began to betray me, and you began to expose your nakedness to the other nations, and you began to shame yourself and me by exposing yourself to the other nations. And so, What I will do, therefore, is I will give you up to that, and I will give you up to the nations, and they can rip you naked, and they can take your your clothing from you and expose you completely if that's what you really want. But then right at the end of the chapter in the last verse, it says, yet there is still an atonement, uh, a kefar, a covering to come. There's still an atonement coming, even for someone as shameful as you, says the Lord. And so, again, we just see the themes of nakedness and covering here as part of the story of the Bible. And this is beautifully shown by John in his crucifixion scene. So John loves to pick up metaphors and pictures from across the Old Testament and then use them to show us who Jesus is with kind of metaphorical theology, symbolic theology, if you like. Uh, John is like a poet, really. And, and in John 19, 23 and 24, we have Jesus on the cross and he's stripped naked, and the guys that are crucifying him are gambling for his clothes, for his garments, okay? And so the ones that crucify him take his garments from him for themselves. So what we see in this picture of the the cross is that the clothed one has been made naked in order that the naked ones may be clothed. The honorable one has been shamed on public display so that the shameful ones might be honored because they take Jesus's garments for themselves. And their story is our story. We're the ones who crucified Jesus. The the mighty one is made weak so that us weak ones may be made mighty. Amen. There's a transaction that happens. If you like, there's an honor substitution that takes place there in John's picture of the cross. Okay so so that was the first section of what we're going to look at which is honor and shame and atonement. We're going to do a second section now uh, which is honor and shame and discipleship. And so this is stories about people choosing shame. So in a world in the in the eastern mediterranean in the ancient middle east in a world where your most precious possession was your reputation, your name, your honor that was the most valuable thing that you have. And through that, you get kinship, protection, community, people to do business with, a place in the world, all through your name, through your father's name, through your family and who they are. Yeah? That gives you everything. And what we see is that many times in the scripture, people are commanded to or choose to leave that behind. They choose shame for themselves and their family in order to follow Jesus and his promise of eternal honor. And this is extremely pertinent in my context. So in our church in Istanbul, many of the Turkish people who come to faith, this is what they're doing. Many of the people that come to faith with us, their parents may disown them. We have had parents go to the lawyers show the baptismal certificate and say, I want to legally disown my son and my daughter now. Okay? People, uh, people choosing shame in this way and not just choosing being ridiculed or being mocked, ah, you believe in God, how silly. They're choosing the kind of toxic shame that infects who they are now, how the whole community sees them. When Turkish people change on their ID card the religious section from Muslim to Christian, which you can still do in Turkey, that when they go and do them well I've got a friend who's in military service at the moment he's got christian written on his id card the shame that he experiences and it's not just ridicule and beatings and being given the toilets to clean it's not just embarrassment it's disassociation it's pushing away it's no one wants to be seen with him because his shame will uh, infect them yeah it's it's toxic and so this is the shame that people choose when they choose to follow Christ. And in the scripture, we see this very, very often. And so, for example, the story of Abraham. So Genesis chapter 12, note the language of honor and shame in the call to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now all three of these words are heavily weighted honor words, your country, your kindred, your family, your father's house. This is who you are. This is where you belong. There's a, a very common proverb in the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean which says a stone has weight in its place, okay? In other words, where you're from, in your village, where everybody knows who you are and who your family is, you have reputation, you have honor. People know you there. You have substance. But if you leave there and you become a rolling stone, Nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows your name, your family, where you come from. You're becoming like a gypsy. You're becoming someone who doesn't belong anywhere. There's a reason why the traveler community all over the world are despised by people, sadly. And it's because no one knows where they come from. So they don't belong. You're, you're not like us. You're not from us. You don't have land here. You don't re- belong here. So there's, there's this cut offness, and and it's, it's a view of shame. Does that make sense? And so what Abraham is choosing to do, interestingly, I was recently in Bulgaria uh, teaching in some of our churches and I was teaching this. And they said, we have exactly the same proverb in Bulgaria. Who knew? Exactly the same. And so it's, it's a very common understanding that where you are, your family land, your father's house, that makes you who you are. And God here is asking Abraham to leave all of those things. To follow an invisible God who's promised something maybe going to happen in the future. You can imagine not just the ridicule, but he loses security. He loses protection. He loses uh, people around him that if a war happens, people he can call on. He loses everything when he leaves his father's household. Does that make sense? And then God says to him, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so the promise is, I'm going to restore all the things that give someone honor, land, offspring, a name, families, blessing. But you've got to make this gamble. First, you've got to leave all the sources of your worldly honor. You're gambling on God. And then I'm promising that in the future, I'll restore these things to you. Okay? So that's the call of Abraham. And we see this often in the way that people are called to follow Jesus. So if you look at the story of Nicodemus, so John in chapter 3, you have Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the rich young ruler. Yeah? Nicodemus is John's version of the same story. He's the, the rich young ruler. The story plays the same purpose for John, as the rich young ruler does for Matthew, and Mark, and Luke. Nicodemus comes from one of the most powerful families in Jerusalem. We know this from historical records. So one of the most influential, powerful, high-status families in the community of Jerusalem. That's Nicodemus. So he's like, hi, I'm Nicodemus. Give me a chair in the front row. And everybody has to do that. Yeah, he's that kind of guy. Everything that he values, everything that makes him who he is, so his wealth, his reputation, his status, his standing, his power, it all comes through his father, through his family, through his first birth. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, that's the only person that Jesus says that to, and it's the only time that we see Jesus using that language, you must be born again. And he's saying it to this person who has everything that he could possibly want through his first birth. And Jesus is telling him, you want me, you have to renounce everything that accrues to you through your first birth to claim a new birth. Yeah, To, To be born again means actually I'm getting a new family, a new father. That means I'm renouncing my old family and my old father and everything that came through that. In John chapter 4, we see the Samaritan woman and Jesus talking to her, and it's like a contrast. So Nicodemus is male, powerful, rich, Jewish. The Samaritan woman is female, Samaritan, not rich. And so there's a contrast between the two. But amazingly, it's the Samaritan woman who journeys in her conversation with Jesus and comes to faith, and Nicodemus goes away at this point and doesn't. And so Jesus doesn't say to the Samaritan woman, you must be born again, because she already knows I've got nothing for my f- I've got nothing anyway. But to Nicodemus, he says, you have to renounce everything that came through your first birth. You know, sometimes in our churches, we can be deceived by this. We can think, ah, if we could get some powerful, influential people to become Christians in our church, you know, some, some powerful people that have influence in our town, if they could come, you know, then they could bring their influence into the kingdom here. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, no, no, no. If you come into the kingdom, you're renouncing your influence. If you come to the rich young ruler story, which is similar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I- if we look at Mark chapter 10, we see the same call at work here. We often think that this story is about cash uh, and kind of cash wealth because in our society, that's, that's how we read this story. But if this story is read in the Middle East, it's about this guy who has great He's from a good family. If he's young and he's rich, it's because he's from a good family. His wealth isn't in cash. His wealth is in lands, family lands. So when Jesus tells him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus is telling him, take your family lands, your inheritance, your family name, Turn it into cash and give it away. Make it nothing. And then come follow me. And so what what Jesus is asking him to do is to take the thing that is most precious to a Middle Eastern man, which is honor and family, honor, family, and land all combined, honor and family, his name, who he is, where he came from. And Jesus is asking him to renounce that in favor of a new loyalty. Uh, this is the most difficult thing that Jesus could ask someone to do in that context. Kenneth Bailey says he is asked to place loyalty to the person of Jesus higher than loyalty to his family. So what he's being asked, ar- does that make sense? Are you, are, you f- are you feeling it? See, what he's being asked to do is actually break a commandment in the way that he understood it. Because the Ten Commandments, one of them was honor your father and mother. Now, the way you honor your father and mother in this context is you stay at home until they become older. You look after them in your old age. You give them an honorable burial in the family lands. And and then you are becoming the head of the household that they've bequeathed to you. That's how you honor your father and mother. Jesus is asking him not to do that. He's asking him to, to leave his father and mother and follow him as an itinerant rabbi. He's asking him to renounce the family lands, sell them. And you think it's an extraordinarily difficult ask, and the young man is not prepared to do it. And then Peter, watching this interaction, says, Wow, Jesus, we've left everything to follow. You know, Peter's like, hang on, we did we're Middle Eastern men too. We did that too. And you look at Peter's story, it's true. He had a house. He had a mother-in-law. Okay, he left his mother-in-law. I would probably do that too. Uh, <laughs> but he had a business. Pe- Peter has left it all to follow Jesus. That's, it's, it's not just disloyal to your family. It's not just shameful. It's like, where is your sense of responsibility? Where is your sense of community? You're following this wandering rabbi. You're leaving your family, your responsibility. Yeah? We see it even more graphically with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. In Mark chapter 1, we are told that they were in the boat with their father. Jesus comes and says, follow me. And they leave their father in the boat and they follow Jesus. (gasps) the shame of it. Dad, we don't care about anything that you've built for us. We're following this new guy that we've only just met. We have no respect for your, you know, it's both of them. It's not like James goes and John says, I'll look after dad. They've both gone. The the shame of this is extraordinary because they've actually, they've seen something in Jesus. They've seen a promise there that says, whatever my earthly, worldly honor was worth, there's some even more otherworldly promise here that I'm going to pursue. And so there's an extraordinary cost for them. And when Peter says to Jesus, when he's seen this, wow, we left everything to follow you. He's thinking, we did. What, what is there for us? What's going to happen to us? Where's our security? Where's our hope, our name? Jesus says to him famously, Ma- Mark 10 and 29, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left sources of honor, house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake And for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, no prosperity gospel, and in the age to come, eternal life. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, and then he finishes with, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first, which is one of Jesus' aphorisms, which is all about honor and shame. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, yeah, you've lost all of those sources of honor, but you will receive that back in this life a hundredfold, 10,000%. How does that work? Well, look around you. Brothers and sisters and mothers and and houses. Yeah, whose house shall I come to for lunch today? Because these houses are my houses now because it's part of my inheritance. Yeah. And so we get... Restoration of our honor within the church community in this age, the eschatological community, and in the age to come, everlasting life. Hallelujah. And when we, we were living in Istanbul, church planting, uh, my wife got really ill, uh, dangerously ill, nearly died a couple of times two years ago. And so we had to jump to the UK very quickly, made a decision to just pack everything up and come to the UK and, and sit it out for her recovery. And um, when we did that, a pastor in the UK, who I really respect, said to me, ah, it's nice to see you're finally putting your family first. And I think, in the light of this scripture, I'm not sure that's what we believe. My Turkish friends said to me, hang on, Andy, to follow Jesus in your church, we left everything of our families, and you told us that this was our new family, And now you're renouncing that, and you're going back in favor of your fleshly family. Hang on. So it's difficult, isn't it? But the the call to follow Jesus is a call to put a new allegiance, a new loyalty, in favor of our old allegiances and old loyalties. And in the context of these stories, that means family, because that means honor and standing and place in the world and name. Oh, wow. Time has flown. <laughs> Just a couple more things then on this honour and shame and cost. And so in the story of Jonathan and David, we see this really clearly. When when Jonathan chooses David Instead of his father, Saul, he's betraying his father and he's choosing a new loyalty, a new family. He's renouncing the the kingship that comes with his father and he's choosing a new family. And for many Muslim background believers, this story of Jonathan is really precious. Because the way his father treats him is the way their fathers treated them. Because Saul says to Jonathan, 1 Samuel 20 and verse 30, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? And so he uses very harsh language to shame Jonathan, to try and change his behavior. Maybe if I shame him enough in front of everyone, he'll repent and he'll come back to me. And then in the next verse, he tries to kill him. So Saul tries to kill his son, Jonathan. This is an honor killing. He's like, well, if he won't repent, then I'm going to kill him to expunge the shame from my family, you see. But Jonathan has chosen David instead of his father, Saul. And this is the choice that all of us make when we choose Jesus instead of our old father, Adam. And all the honor and, and position in the world that comes from our old father, Adam, instead we're choosing Christ and what he's offering us. And it's a gamble because first you renounce everything that comes from the world, gambling on his promise that he's going to restore to you in the future life, like Peter and James and John experienced, like Nicodemus was offered. And then the final passage that I'll look at is Hebrews chapters 10 to 12. And our understanding of Hebrews is that this community, initially when they'd chosen to follow Christ, had rejoiced in the cost and the persecution and yeah, we'll do it for Jesus. They can throw us in prison. They can persecute us. We're going to follow him. They had an initial zeal. But with time, that has died down and some of them are starting to turn back again. And, And the writer of the Hebrews is trying to persuade them. No, no. Remember, you chose shame. Remember, in choosing to follow Jesus, you chose to renounce everything the world was offering you and you chose shame. And so he's trying to remind them. And so in chapter 10, he reminds them what they did at the beginning. So 10 and 33, he says, Don't you remember? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had better possession. And an abiding one. So you were okay with choosing shame at the beginning. Don't you remember? You did this. You chose this. And then he gives them chapter 11. He gives them examples of heroes of the faith who chose shame. They chose the shame of following God rather than honor and reputation in the eyes of the world. And so he gives examples. So uh, chapter 11 verse 8. Abraham chose shame. All the language that we just looked at, that what he lost and what he chose to, to become a wanderer with no home, to become a gypsy, yeah, to become shamed in the eyes of that's what Abraham chose. Moses chose shame. Verse 26 of chapter 11 it says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. So Moses had everything, all the reputation and, you know, son of the Pharaoh. And he chose reproach. He chose to identify with the slave people with no home. He chose that. He left everything. And then the martyrs chose shame. So, for example, verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They chose the shame of knowing Christ rather than status and honor in the world. And then the, the crown of all the examples Chapter 12 and verse 2, it's all part of the same sermon. Jesus chose shame. Chapter 12 and verse 2, looking to the cross, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it tells us there that, in, in verse 1 of chapter 12, that there's a great crowd of witnesses looking on. And so what they're saying is, guys, you started running. You chose well at the beginning, yeah? You started running, but now you're, you're giving up. You're slowing down. You're tempted by things in the world. Remember these prophets. Remember Abraham and Moses. and the, Remember they chose shame and they kept going. And there's a great crowd of witnesses. In other words, they're all now in heaven looking on at you running your race. Okay, he's trying to shame these guys into good behavior. He's saying, don't give up because everybody's watching. Don't give up because everybody's watching. And Jesus, our great example of choosing the shame of the cross in order to offer atonement and covering for us and despising its shame, they're all watching. And so keep running. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is exhorting people to do. Okay, so I'm going to end there. I think just in conclusion, trying to look at some things in the Bible with an honor and shame lens helps us see the story of the world even slightly differently. So God made Adam and Eve in the garden he gave us that's us, yeah, he gave us the 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 greatest honor imaginable to represent God to make the invisible one visible to be his 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 ambassadors on earth to represent him to guard in the wilderness and and expand it, yeah he gave us the most honorable, most glorious responsibility the Hebrews even says he made us higher than the angels, and so the devil who's an angel was jealous of us the the devil was jealous of us because God favored us and and the devil makes a plan to, to put us out of the honor of God. The oldest Christian apologetic treatise tells this story written in the Middle East. It says the devil was trying to put us out of the honor of God. And so what happens is when we choose to sin, like the prodigal son, we bring shame on our father and on his household and we bring shame on ourselves and we're cut off, exiled, abandoned, and we spend life, all of history... Trying, therefore, to build our own reputation, our own security. Trying to build our own honor. All the time you find naked people trying to get fig leaves and cover themselves, yeah? With my job or my status or how well I'm doing or the stories I can tell or my money. Yeah, it's like fig leaves. Just trying to cover my own nakedness. And the whole story of the Bible is that. That's what we do. We try to mitigate our shame through acquisition and status and profile. And having lots of followers on Twitter or And then Jesus comes, the most honorable one, the most glorious one, and he chooses shame. The honorable one is shamed on the cross in order that we shameful ones might be clothed, given honor. There's a a substitution, a transaction that takes place. Jesus puts us back into the honor of God and our nakedness is clothed with his righteousness, with his perfect and holy honor. And so we choose to follow him knowing that In this life, amongst our brothers and sisters, we have a place to belong, a place of acceptance, a place where there's no envy and striving and competition and jealousy and bitterness. And, oh, why are you blessed and I'm not? Because it's the church. But then also one day we will have lands, houses, security, a great name, because our patron Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father and we're in him. We know someone in really high places now. And that's where we're going. That's our hope and our future and our security. Amen? Amen. 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 God bless you. So, um, who's going to read their Bible through a whole new way now? Yeah, totally blown you away, I hope. Made you realize that there's so much riches in our scriptures that we can really learn and enjoy. Uh, I'm so grateful, Andy, for being with us today. We bless you. Thank you for serving us so well. I think we should thank Andy again. I think it was brilliant. (laughs) So... Andy's book, God Global Humility, is available in the Resource Center. Please do get it. And stuff by the, the author Kenneth Bailey will be also stuff to look out for, uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, etc. So those books are also available. I'd recommend those uh, to you. Enjoy uh, the rest of your day. Thank you for being uh, at this seminar. God bless you.